There are 7.9 billion humans on this planet right now. 99.9% .9 of their DNA is identical, 99.9%. Just 0.1% difference in DNA determines the differences and makes us unique. But in that 0.1% is also that, that where we share our risks of diseases that we will develop. It gives me great pleasure to introduce a very good colleague of mine, Professor Justin O'Sullivan, the Deputy Director of the Liggins Institute and one of the country's leading molecular microbiologists and research molecular geneticists. Justin is going to talk to us about precision medicine, about the way in which our genes determine our risks of diseases and how our genes might determine how we might respond to drugs in the future and how our genes may determine our longevity. Justin, the platform is yours. As we start our talk tonight, what I would like you to do is just take a look around you. What do you see? When I look around myself, I'm in my office at the University of Auckland, I see things here that look permanent. I see a computer screen I'm looking at, there's my desk, there's the walls. They all look permanent. But that permanence is an illusion. If you look again, it doesn't look like it's changed. But it is different. The atoms, the electrons, the positrons, all the trons have moved. And while it looks the same, it's not. In fact, everything uh, is probabilistic. And this is one of the most amazing things that we can realize, particularly if we apply it to ourselves. We're all accidents. And by that, I don't mean that, you know, you're some sort of unplanned, you know, uh, pregnancy or something like that. What I mean is that we're statistically improbable. And this improbability is realized in every aspect of our existence. So, in fact, the only thing that I can talk to you about that's not improbable is that I can guarantee that within 100 years of this call, everyone here will be dead. That's straightforward. 117 of us in every 100,000 people will die each year of cancer. 102 in every 100,000 people will die of circulatory disease. 10 in 100,000 people will die of diabetes. 30 in 100,000 people will die of respiratory disorders. 33 will die of external causes, um, you know, blunt force trauma, um, other self-harm and various other things. That's about 364 people and 100,000 every year die from those causes in New Zealand. Death and taxes, it's all unavoidable. But again, how and when you die is probabilistic. But at the same time, it's undeniable that our actual existence is linear. We're born, we age, we die. And that's an artifact of the universe that we're in, perhaps. Maybe in other realities, that's not quite the case. But in this one, it definitely is. And that, unfortunately, influences the way we think about ourselves. And, in fact, the DNA that encodes us and our traits. And indeed, many ways, that is really unhelpful. And as I go through my talk tonight, I hope you'll see why that is. How do we tap the untapped potential of our DNA to personalise your healthcare and extend your life? But the answer is actually relatively simple, and that is that we need to change the way we think about healthcare. What we need to do is we need to move from a system that tries to correct or cure a disease to a system that is truly proactively trying to inform prevention using full part patient participation. How do we do that? Well, it's in many ways it's very simple, and in others it's extremely complex. 
And I'm sorry to say, but for many of us, it's a bit late to make a huge difference because the diseases that are going to kill you have already started developing. You just can't see the symptoms yet. The answer is simple. The answer is that what we should do is we should sequence the genomes of all of our children. Not a representative few, not most, but all. It's not going to help you, but it is going to help them. And I'll explain why. There are 60,000 children born a year in New Zealand. And I'm telling you, it is very, very possible. 24 machines running 24 hours, seven days a week would do this. We'd get DNA sequence, we'd get epigenetic marks, which are the signals from the environment, and we'd get that all on those individuals in one run. 60,000 children a year born in New Zealand in Aotearoa, the materials to sequence, just the materials to sequence them, would cost $60 million. $60 million, that's all. By comparison, the Human Genome Project took 13 years and cost $3 billion US dollars to do just one individual but we've moved on. Things are faster. We can do this. In fact, if we really wanted to and we thought that 60 odd million dollars was too much money, then we could actually do it cheaper. We could do it for about six to nine million, but we'd only get about a tenth of the information or maybe even a hundredth of the information that was there. But it would be enough, definitely enough to start, definitely enough to make a big difference. Now, listen, I'm not saying this is simple, there'll be hiccups, they'll come along the way, but eventually, over the course of a couple of years, it would become business as usual, and it would impact lives in ways that we have very little understanding now. Positive, very positive impacts. Now, before you say, we can't do that, it's not ethical, we already run very exhaustive tests on children, using the Guthrie test, for example. This looks at metabolites in their blood, and it's done on all children, and it has helped save thousands of kids. Doing the DNA in the way I'm talking about now will address both common diseases, the complex ones like diabetes, cancer, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, all of those types of diseases. And it will also address the rare diseases that are present in our population. And this is really important because there are 7,000 rare diseases. Well, who cares? 7,000 rare diseases. It doesn't really matter. Well, it does matter if you're one of those people that has it. But there's so many of these rare diseases, 7,000. And in fact, a rare disease occurs in one in 10 people, one in 10 New Zealanders. So currently there are 400 to 500,000 New Zealanders who are here now walking around who have rare diseases, many of which are undiagnosed, some of which can be treated, but they don't know. This is a huge burden on the people, not only them, but their families, their whanau. And unfortunately, most rare diseases impact children. 50% of them impact children, and those ones, a lot of them kill the children before they're five years of age. Huge impact. So now that I've told you what I think we should do, let me explain why I think we should do it. Let's talk about the DNA itself. Your DNA contains the instructions that make you you. From a simple perspective, the information is stored in about 3 billion bases. They're arranged in 22 autosomal chromosome pairs and two sex chromosomes. And you inherit those from your parents, one chromosome each from each of your parents. The chromosomes range in length from about 250 million bases down to about 50 odd million bases. 
um, and they all contain different numbers of genes and various other aspects. You know, if you were to take the DNA out of an individual and extract it all and line it up end to end, it would go from Earth to the Sun and back about 133 times, just in one individual there's that much DNA. And then, of course, there's actually a hitchhiker, a bacterium, which is actually part of our cells, and this is a mitochondria, and that has its own little genome and its own unique genetic code. And that's quite important to remember. But genetic variation in our genomes is quite diverse. There are about 44 million single nucleotide changes that we know that occur in at least one in 20 people's genomes. Between any two of us, we have at least a million differences in our DNA sequence. It's a million differences between any two of us. Now, unfortunately, this information is a little bit biased because when I say the human genome, what I'm really saying is I'm meaning the Caucasian or the European genome because the sequencing of genomes has been expensive up until now and the work has been funded in places where it's led to an unconscious bias in the genomes that have been sequenced. But that has been remedied now as we've become aware of that bias. Most of those 44 million changes that I talked about actually occur outside of genes, because genes only make up about 2% of the DNA that you have in your cells. And that's a really interesting thing, but it poses quite a significant problem. It poses a problem because whilst the gene products don't guarantee anything, I mean, they're basically machines that increase the probability of, of, of a particular reaction occurring in your cells, we can see how things catalyzing reactions in a cell can actually lead to a trait, right? Because if you don't make a product, then you don't create a trait or it doesn't help build that, that, that trait that you're looking at. It's like if you don't, if you break a brick in a wall, then the wall can pull over, right? A very simple thing. But it does leave the question, how do these variants, these changes in our DNA that are outside of genes, how do they actually impact anything? Because they're not affecting a gene. And we've all been taught since we've understood Mendel's rules, you know, genes are the units of inheritance. They're really important. Well, not that simple. And so that's what my group and many other people work on. And really, it's a major endeavor now trying to assign function to these non-coding, these, these genetic variants that occur elsewhere in the genome. But we do know a few things about them, because sometimes you don't have to know how something works in order to be able to use it, right? That's a real simple thing, okay? We don't necessarily know how a television screen works, but we can use a television. Same thing with your DNA. And let me explain that. So genome-wide association studies are studies where we take large groups of people. We categorize them according to some particular trait. So let's say a simple thing is like hair color. And we take one group of people with blonde hair, one people, group of people with uh, brunettes, and then we would sequence those people and we look for the changes in their DNA that actually correlate with the presence of the blonde hair or the brown hair. And by doing that, we can understand which parts of the DNA actually are associated with that particular trait that we're looking at. Now, hair color, it's not so complicated. Well, it is in many ways. But what we like to do and scientists do is they try to do this to understand the risk of developing diseases and complex diseases. So diseases like diabetes and Parkinson's and asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder, even things like COVID infections. And I'll come to that in a few minutes. So it's really important that we don't just think about the usual suspects here, right? 
candidate studies or candidate gene approaches have done amazing things. You all know of genes like cystic fibrosis, CFTR, or Huntington's. Candidate genes, very, very, very important. Absolutely. But complex diseases don't just involve those candidate genes. They involve many variants across the genome that work together, each one having a small effect, but contributing to the overall phenotype. And that is really important to understand. So we're not looking just for the usual characteristics here or features. Now, I know that you're probably sick to death of talking about it, but we just need to talk about SARS-CoV-2 for a moment, so COVID. Now, my daughter, and I, I call her um, 18837 now because that was her COVID infection number, you know, because we worked it out when, when she got infected based on the number of infections that New Zealand had had. So 18837, she got COVID. She hung out with us for a few days beforehand. It was a holiday weekend. Um, she started to show symptoms. She got tested, went into isolation. We all did uh, because being 18837, it was relatively early on. Um, but the rest of the family, nothing. And you've all got stories like that. We all know people that have been like that, right? They've been involved very close contact for a long period of time with people and they haven't got COVID. We all recognize as well that some people show symptoms and others don't. Some people will get hospitalized, others won't. Some people will die. Now there's no real rhyme or reason to this as far as we can tell just by looking at people. And COVID, as we call it, of course, is the result of a viral infection. It's not what you would think of complex diseases. But I think that's where we're wrong. And that's one of the instances where the sort of information that's hidden in our DNA can actually be quite helpful in understanding why some people do and some people don't die from COVID. Now, there have been big studies done internationally because obviously we've had this technology here and people have used it. And I've used it to understand what's happening during this pandemic in a way like we've never been able to do anything before in any other pandemics, right? And it's amazing. The information is incredible. So there are 3,801 SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms or changes in the DNA sequence that have been associated with severe responses to SARS-CoV-2 infection. 3,801. If you happen to have the right combination of those, then you are going to be severely affected by SARS-CoV-2. You're going to wind up in hospital on a respirator and or die. Very, very high probability that that's going to happen. There are another 4,734 4, variants which have been associated with being hospitalized. So these ones increase your risk of just being hospitalized. You don't necessarily wind up on a respirator and or die, but you will most likely wind up in hospital as a result of the infection. Now, naturally, if this GWAS approach works, right, and this information in the DNA is real and it does correlate with the severity of the infection, then there should be overlap between the ones that you wind up in hospital or the ones where you wind up in hospital on a respirator and or die. And yes, there is. So there are about 2,348 of them that are common to both. Now, these 2,348, they form switches. They form switches in the DNA that control how genes are turned on and off in the lungs, in the brain, in the heart, in the other tissues of the people who suffer from this infection. Now, 
That is the key to understanding why these people wind up, in part at least, why they wind up in hospital or on a respirator. But it's not those ones that are common. They're important. Don't let me get, don't, 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 don't take it wrong way. But there are unique ones, and the unique ones are really the key, key to this. So there are 649 switches that affect lungs in people who are hospitalized, just hospitalized. There are 248 different switches that affect the lungs in people who are severely affected, who wind up on a respirator. Now, some of the people in my group have worked out a new analysis that you can do to basically um, understand what these switches are doing and relate them to the morbidities that are associated with your outcome for SARS-CoV-2 infection. So this is an analysis that we've done on other things, um, but it hasn't been published yet. So, so please do take this with a grain of salt until, until my peers have, have basically said, yes, this is a good thing or a bad thing. But what we think it shows is this. The switches that are unique to either being hospitalized or being severely and put on a respirator are impacting on biological processes and pathways in the lung. And they're doing that in a way that is really quite intriguing. So many of these uh, lung, of these variants, um, in particular the ones for the hospitalized people, there are a set of variants that impact on general lung function. Now that makes good sense, right? We can all see that, right? If your lung function is not so good and you get a lung infection, then you're gonna wind up in the hospital. That seems reasonable. The severe ones, well, those ones actually impact on lung function too, but they do it a different way. What they do is they actually impact on lung function in a way that is reminiscent or predisposes you to chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder and emphysema. So this is a really severe impact on your lung function. And so the genetics and the probability is, as a result of all of this being probabilistic, is that if you have that set of variants, your lung function is really severely impacted, just in general predisposing you not only to SARS-CoV-2, but COPD and emphysema. Therefore, if you get that infection, you have a very strong response and you need respiration and respiratory help. Now, the people who are severely affected, they also have changes in things around interleukin levels and fibrinogen levels. And of course, you know, fibrinogen is one of those things where you get lots of clots, it makes clots in the blood, and those levels are changed. So they're clotting changes. Again, these are things that we know from looking and using epidemiological studies that just look at the characteristics of people in hospital. Now, we can understand how those traits might interact to make a person more or less susceptible to SARS-CoV-2, right? We can all do that. That doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to do that at all. But some of the features that come up are not so easy to understand, and yet they are very statistically and biologically very robust cause. And they are very interesting. One of them is an interaction with Parkinson's disease. Now, just to be really clear here, I'm not saying that everyone who gets COVID is going to get Parkinson's disease. But we do know that after the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918, there was a significant increase in the rate of Parkinson's disease that was diagnosed. There seems to be an interaction between these variants that predispose you to being affected by SARS-CoV-2 and Parkinson's disease. And the interesting thing about this is that it's something that we've seen in the epidemiology, at least of the Spanish flu virus, a similar 
We're not similar, but it's a different respiratory virus. So our concern is that that's going to happen now. But we also see interactions or evidence for interactions with other chronic conditions, coronary artery disease. Again, a well-known morbidity or comorbidity of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Multiple sclerosis, mood disorders, type 1 diabetes. These comorbidities have been identified in these massive epidemiological studies of populations who are affected by SARS-CoV-2 or COVID. But the power of the analysis that we've done using the DNA and starting at the DNA level is that it doesn't just say these are the multimorbidities. It identifies those multimorbidities without having any a priori assumptions of what they might be. We made no assumptions about what the multimorbidities might be. We did it in a completely uninformed way. And when we did that, we found not only the multimorbidities that have been seen in these epidemiological studies, but we also found the genetic variants that predispose you to that. So therefore we can calculate a person's risk. And we also found the biological connections that are actually responsible for that. Now that means that not only do we know the trait to look at in the individual, but we know the genetics that give them the risk, and we know the biology that's behind that, which means that we can target in ways to modify, potentially, those multimorbidities and maybe affect the outcomes for these individuals. That's the power that sequencing the DNA of individuals gives you. It gives you that ability to where you have an understanding of the things that might work together to contribute to a disease like diabetes, Parkinson's, any chronic disorder like that, that you can actually work out what might be contributing to it and you then know how you can treat an individual, okay? And that's really the power. But we shouldn't think about diseases in terms of just one particular condition and that's what that tells us, right? SARS and the COVID infection, COVID is a complex disorder. It's a result of multiple things happening, the infection interacting with other morbidities and your outcomes depend on those morbidities. And so rather than thinking about things as just one index condition, we should think about things as being a set of conditions that work together. All diseases are like that. There's not one form of multiple sclerosis. Your form of multiple sclerosis is unique to you. It's unique to your genetic risk. It's unique to your environmental exposures. Your form of Parkinson's is unique to you. It's your genetic risk, your environmental exposures. The same for any chronic condition that we suffer from. Okay, so your disease is unique to you. And if that's the case, then we should treat each disease as if it's unique to people. Because giving people the same drugs doesn't necessarily mean it's going to have an impact on everybody in the same way. And we know that because, unfortunately, in New Zealand, well, fortunately in New Zealand, you know, your lifespan is into the early mid-80s. If you're European, if you're Maori Pacifica, it's sort of 10 years shorter than that, which is an issue that needs to be addressed. But roughly from your 50s, most of us, or 50% of us at least, will have at least one condition that we get treated for on a regular basis. One condition. As you age, you will end up with, most likely, more than eight conditions that you're being treated for at any one moment in time. 
Now, those conditions aren't, aren't independent of each other. They all develop together and they interact together. And many of you who have had uh, older loved ones and, and they've been treated for these conditions will know that when they get given one drug, sometimes you've got to give them another drug to balance out some other effect on another condition that they have to try and bring the things together because the drugs cross-react with different conditions. That's because the genetic and the biological basis of those diseases is not independent. They are intertwined. They work together. And that's what we have to do. We have to understand that, how they work together. We can do that if we sequence the genomes. And that's a really important thing, all right, because over the course of your lifetime, you're going to have about 14,000 pills as you go from cradle to grave, all right? 14,000, it's been counted. And that's the sort of average number that somebody in the UK has. But 14,000 pills, you know, it's, it's mind staggering when you think about it, right? Just how many pills that is. But you could change that if you reduce the frequency of these conditions. Reduce the frequency of these conditions. In order to do that, you want to do it in a progressive way. You want to empower people to change their lifestyles, to not do the things that are going to put them or exacerbate their genetic risk. You do that by telling them what their risks are. So how would sequencing our children help? Well, it's simple. Many traits now, we can estimate the risk for a disease. And we do that by combining those changes across the genome pulling them together and saying these ones all contribute to a risk and of your, your risk of this disease in this way. And your overall score for that is high or low. So you have a high risk of developing it or a low risk of developing that condition. And in some instances, not in all instances, I'm not saying in all at all. I mean, it's got to come and there's more that has to develop. But in some instances, our understanding that risk is good enough to use it already in the right populations. So for example, type 1 diabetes. Your body stops making insulin, your pancreatic cells are destroyed, or your beta islets are destroyed by your autoimmune system, right? We kind of know how that works. There are about 70 genetic variants in your genome that will predict your risk of developing type 1 diabetes by the time you're five. 70 variants by the time you're five. If you know that a person has that risk, you can monitor those persons for the onset of, or you can treat them to try and alleviate and prevent the development of the autoantibodies that destroy their pancreas. And therefore, you will extend the period of their life without type 1 diabetes, which before the development of insulin was a death sentence and a horrible death sentence, right? Drink lots of water, starve, die. Horrible. But type 1 diabetes is not actually just a disease of kids. 40% of individuals who develop type 1 di uh, develop diabetes will actually present after the age of 30, 40% of those people will have actually type 1 diabetes. There's a lot of misdiagnosis that occurs. But polygenic risk scores, okay, and that's what we're talking about here, where we take multiple little snips and we add them all together. These scores tell us the risk of developing a condition across the life course. Okay, so it doesn't matter when the disease develops. These things will tell you the risk of developing that disease across a person's life course. So from the moment they were conceived through to the moment they die. And that's because the genetic variants that make these scores up or that contribute to these scores are inherited from your parents. There are 
catalogs of polygenic risk scores. We catalog everything, right? There's catalogs online. So there are about 2,199 polygenic risk scores for about 538 different traits. So think about that for a second. 538 different traits. Many of them are diseases. If you sequence the genome, you can look at those scores. Now, right now, a lot of them aren't going to be very accurate. But the more we do it, the more accurate they get, the better it is. It's chicken and egg sort of scenario. So whilst the sequencing would be done on children, we're predicting what's happening to them over their life course. Effectively, we can tell them you're at risk of this disease when you are 40 or 50. Do these things now, monitor these things, and it will push that disease back. It extends their well-being and their life. Really important. And that's where this comes in. That's where the power lies. Of course, the scores are only as good as the data we've got, right? So we've got to build more data. We have to do this. And we're going to do that by iterating. We're going to do that through projects like the Varian project that's been run by Genomics at Tiaroa, where all of those things are really important. What I'm talking about is not complicated to do. As I said, 24 machines, or 48 machines, 24-7, we'll be able to sequence everybody in New Zealand. So risk scores, they do work. People who have are in the top 8% for coronary artery disease polygenic risk scores have a risk that's comparable of developing coronary artery disease that's comparable to really significant monogenic disorders, okay, familiar with hypercholesteremia. But if you tell those people who have that polygenic risk that they have it, and this has been done, knowing it empowers them to change their risk-reducing behavior or to change their behaviors and actually gives them more personal control and it actually reduces their overall risk. As I said, we still don't know what the genetic changes are actually doing and how they're conveying that risk onto these people, but we do know that it works and that's important. So the benefits of sequencing our children, or in fact, ourselves, Patient stratification, that's simple. If we know the complex diseases that are working together, how they interact to cause a disease or, or link to another one another, then we can actually stratify patients. We can do it in, and we can use that information in clinical trials to actually understand why some of the people in clinical trials respond and others don't. That happens in all clinical trials, but if we don't get enough responders, because the clinical trials across a cohort of people, we say it didn't work. But that's not right. The people are individuals. They have their own risks. Those risks are what we should be testing against. The stratification will also help with your best treatment strategy. If you go to a doctor and I've got this risk, here it is, these are the things that are affected, they know that there are drugs already that they can repurpose and target those things and might in fact help with the condition that you've got. Early diagnosis for people with rare disorders, and don't make a mistake, this would make a massive, massive difference to these people. High-tech industry will develop as a result of this. Our health research would be able to be focused to treat our own population. We're looking for ways to impact our population. The government gives us the money to do the research. Why don't we do it in a way that impacts our own populations in a way yeah, that makes a really huge impact? We could, and we have the skills in our country, we could be targeting individuals and working on them as opposed to maybe some of the ideas that I might think are interesting, but aren't really going to help anybody in the short term.
equity in treatment, reducing false hope for treatment with drugs that we know are going to have a slim chance of working in individuals, some individuals, and empowering people with the knowledge to help themselves. But I'd be lying if I said they're just positives. There are a lot of issues associated with this, okay? Firstly, we don't yet have the capacity, the workforce to do this. But there are projects underway now that will change that here in New Zealand. We have issues with consent. We have issues with social license. Guardianship of the information is really important. How do we guard our own information and information about this? Insurance. I don't think insurance is really a problem with this because we have a public health care system. And that public health care system, if we take pressure off it at the top end by just trying to remedy people and patch them up, and we actually start preventing people, it's going to give more money to the system effectively by shifting things around. We don't know what the variants do, but we will learn from them. So that's pretty much what I've got to say. But I do have one last thing, and that is that like all scientists, we think that we discover things anew. But precision medicine and precision approaches using information which comes from your DNA have been used for a long time. Okay, you've all been asked about your family histories. You tell the doctors this, it helps in your diagnosis. You've been done blood typing, again, DNA-based. Transplantations, tissue typing, DNA-based. Clinical scores, all on the basis of features that you have, characteristics that you have, are not doing it using your DNA sequence, but the characteristics and the features are a result of that genetic risk you have and an environmental exposures that you've had over your lifetime. So we might not always recognize it, but DNA lies behind many of the things that are already happening to us in uh, ways that we're treated uh, clinically. So just to finish, this is a difficult conversation because it's challenging the status quo. But I hope that the conversation we've had has challenged many of you to think about this. And I personally believe that we must democratize this for our own children's sake. Now, this type of work is really difficult to fund, but we're really lucky that we've recently received quite a significant donation from a family that want to see this type of work undertaken in critically ill children. And I'd like to thank them for that, and I'd like to thank you all for listening. And Wayne, hit me. Justin. Uh, that was very informative and certainly provocative. We have some questions and I'm going to slightly alter the order of the questions. Um, if you have the, a genetic risk that you can't do anything about, what do you do about that? And should you inform the person? Um, obviously, you know, some fields have been moving a lot further than this in this area than, than others and cancer is one of them and you know guys like Chris Print who are here at Auckland University are doing amazing work looking at you know using DNA and the way they treat people and do these things and others as well it's just a name that pops in my head right now but the question about what do you do with these unintended ones the ones that you can't treat now there's two things a you cannot report and there are guidelines which come out from the the clinical genetics, American geneticists, which are these ones you should report on, these ones you shouldn't report on if you identify them. You know, but you come back to some things, and, and, and I've asked people, you know, about APOE4. So APOE4 is associated with a very high risk of developing Alzheimer's if you have that particular um, hepatite. I've asked people. Now, some people say 
They don't want to know because you can't do anything about it yet. I think those treatments are going to come. They're going to come for that. They're going to come for Huntington's. They're going to come for other things as well, right? Because you can actually use CRISPR to modify the DNA, right? And clinical trials like that are happening. In fact, there's a new one coming soon into New Zealand, which is going to look at cardiac. But those types of trials are happening. But the important thing is that some people say, I don't want to know if I've got APOE4. They don't want to know because you can't do anything about it. And yet other people will say, I've got APOE4. I want to know because I'm going to change the way I live my life. And I think that's a different thing, right? Because you're empowering people to make those decisions. Even asking them, do you want to know, empowers it. And so I think that people have a right to ask that question or to know if they want to. And if they don't want to, then that's fine. But I think a lot of these things and the treatments are going to come. I mean, the technology is moving so quickly around CRISPR, around the way that we can modify DNA and change things, that this these things are, are not going to be, I think, um, untreatable in, in, you know, maybe not in our lifetimes, but maybe in the next lifetimes after. You know, I think treatments are going to be there that are, that are really good. Okay. Now, there's a there's a recurring question here, Justin, and that is when somebody's told they have a genetic risk, there's a risk that they might just kind of give up. Yeah. So that's completely about our understanding of risk. And I can, un that's a good question, you know, but we have this real problem with risk. I think casinos, one-armed bandits, those sorts of things tell us that as a group of people, we have a problem with understanding risk, right, and probabilities. It's one of the things that we have to work on. Just because you have a risk doesn't mean you'll develop the disease. That's it. It's a genetic risk. There are some things where you have a very high probability, but even with cystic fibrosis, you can have a mutation that should give you childhood onset of cystic fibrosis. And yet there are people walking around with that mutation, two copies of it, so they should have childhood onset, and they don't have any symptoms. And they're adults. Now, that means that there are other things that are modifying the way that is realized, the way that gene works in those people, and it's stopping them developing cystic fibrosis. You know, the more we understand about the way these genes work and the way these variants work by looking at bigger populations, the more exceptions like that we're going to find, the more novel ways we're going to have to actually treat people who do show the symptoms early where the risk is being realised. Isn't it, isn't it fair to also say, Justin, is that our outcomes are dependent upon our genes, but also our lifestyle uh, and our behaviour and well-being. You can moderate risks appreciably yep. if you radically change your lifestyle. Your DNA is set when you get it from your parents. Your risk is set at that point. And so it's the interaction between that risk and your environment. That's what ultimately determines it, the environmental signals you're exposed to, undoubtedly. You know, drink too much, smoke too much, uh, you know, chemical exposures, all those sorts of things will modify that risk. And some of them will trigger it off and you will develop a disease as a result. But I think that is definitely modifiable, your environmental exposures, right? You can modify your behaviours, you can modify what you're exposed to, those things you can change, you can control. But I think the big difference that's coming now, as I said about this, this CRISPR, is CRISPR is basically molecular scissors that cut your DNA and replace a bit of it, right? Soon, we'll be able to actually do that, I think, in a way that actually allows you to modify not just your environmental exposures, but also your actual genetic risk as well. 
Now, um, if you have a genetic variant that results in a developing a condition, can this same genetic variant trigger other conditions? In other words, one genetic variant seems to lead to a snowball of different conditions. Yeah, so we, we know that there are certain parts of the genome um, where you can get different variants, but they're all close together. Those regions actually do that. And we call them like super enhancers, you know, and they control many genes and, and that impacts on many traits at once. So those types of regions are regions that we look for a lot, but also many of the genes are controlled by many different parts of the genome. And so you can have things that are associated with um, COPD, for example, that are at one part of the genome and Parkinson's and they interact together, but through a gene that they both control. And so there are different ways of this, but the answer is yes to, to the question here. Um, how do we protect our genetic data and who protects it for us? Because if it, if it was done on any scale, or even if I decided that I wanted to have um, some genetic testing before, where does that get held? Who protects it? Who well, protects it from Big Pharma? Who protects it from life insurance companies? Um, yeah, okay, so it's a, it's a good question, right? But do you actually have to keep it? So if it costs $1,000 now to do a genome, right, then maybe in five years' time, it's only going to be 100 bucks. All we have to do is, do we actually have to keep it? Do we use it? Do we sequence? Do we get the information out of it? Yeah. These are your risks. And then but, but, how do we, but how do we know that it hasn't been kept? We might want it deleted, but how do we know that it's... Well, I think, you know, not, I, don't, I don't have it somewhere. I'd, I'd love, to, love to say I have all the answers, but there are people that are way more qualified that think about these things in way different ways than me um, and, and much more qualified to talk about sort of the ethics and things behind this and the way you store the data and the way you look after it and the guardianship. I mean, and, and there's been a lot of work that's being done on that. Um, and so I think, you know, like I say, I, I'm not really the best person to ask, but uh, yeah, sorry. I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And it is a good question. Given... Uh, the issues around data management and of course for Māori, Māori data sovereignty is an enormous issue right now mm -hmm. um, with all of the government data sets that exist. Um, what you commented right early on, or before we finish I'll bring you back to it, um, was to sequence the genome of all of our children and so the, que the question was when's the best time to do it, at birth or later on? If you're gonna if you're gonna sequence everyone, when, when you're gonna do it? Honestly, oh, I think you might as well do it straight after birth. Um, there are many conditions that will pop up very shortly after birth. If you do it early, you do it quick. You might be able to find those, and there are things that you can actually treat. You can stop long-term damage if you can find them and you can treat them. Why wouldn't you do it early? Why would you wait and let some of those things impact on the children that that we're trying to help? Now. At what age do you talk to an individual about the genetic risks? And of course, in part, that might depend upon whether the disease is actually treatable now. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, that's, that's another very good question. You know, how do you implement this? I mean, obviously, you wouldn't be telling a, a baby that this is your genetic risk because the baby just wouldn't understand, right? So you've got to tell the parents. And I think the parents have got to inform the child and, and, and do that through the way that obviously they're brought up. Um, you know, that's, that's clearly something that you would have to do. So that would be through families um, that you'd have to do that. Um, I think when, that, that's the only way I can think of doing that and, and maybe that's wrong, 
Um, maybe there's a better way, but I, I'm not aware of that. I, I, I think, the, from my perspective, just I don't think there is a right way or a wrong way. I don't. I, no. I think it's it, it's it's a it's a you know this is one a good of, question. It, mm. This is where I think you know all of the issues that we science is galloping ahead of how we manage the ethical, social, emotional, financial dilemmas that we're facing here. Oh, without a doubt, yeah, yeah. The technology is going forward at a rate that's way beyond the speed at which we are preparing ourselves for what it can actually do, and for the positive impacts. And indeed, there are negative impacts. Don't don't get me wrong, but the impacts that it can actually have on us um, as individuals and as populations. Here is the penultimate um, curly question, Justin. Given that we've already got ethnic disparities in uh, diseases and outcomes, um, do you think genotyping could accentuate those disparities if we find more uh, disease-related risks in certain populations? That could be Maori, could be Pacifica, it might be other groups. Um, is, could that, yeah, so I think, um, as, as first point, I think ethnicity is a social construct. Um, you're talking about ancestry. Um, and so ancestral groups, um, they, they do have gone through bottlenecks. There are changes in their DNA. I think the beauty of the way that we're starting to look at this is that we're looking at the total regulatory or, or the total suite of the regulatory switches that occur across the whole genome. Now, that, that means that we're not looking at individual ones that maybe have an impact in one ancestral group. We're looking at the ones that impact on all ancestral groups. Which means, I think, that we are getting or tr starting to move, trying to move beyond the sort of ancestral bottleneck issues that we're talking about here. I think that this can be applied equitably across everybody. And I think that technology, as these technologies develop forward and the treatments go forward, we need to do this across everybody. And it has to be done on everyone, not just some people, some subsets of the population. This is a technology and it's something that promises to redefine the way that we treat ourselves, that we look after our own health. It's important to do it to everybody. Personally, I don't think that any population is more disease prone than any other. I think we all have genetic risk in our DNA. So this genetic risk is there for everybody. Um, and it's very important to consider it that way. I think. Justin, thank you. You were informative, you were certainly entertaining and absolutely provocative because from the Q&A, and I, we have no more time for Q&A, there's lots and lots and lots of Q&A and some great questions. Um, so thank you very much, a wonderful evening. Just in, in wrapping up, to remind everybody, the last um, Raising the Bar presentation next week is Bodo Lang whose topic is, I told you so, word of mouth, what is it, does it work, and how can I use it? Otherwise, kia fai, ahi ahi nui koi. Have a great evening, everyone. <laughs>